It's actually surprising. One of the things I was looking at it, you know, with many of the investor pitches, um, there are about 900, if I don't remember it wrong, 900 million people go to bed hungry. And I thought this was really, really unbelievable. Considering how much the world is developed and there are so many techniques we developed to increase the yield and productivity. And we still have people in the world who go to bed hungry. To me, it was really unthinkable. But there is. So um, we have to do something about it that to make sure that in the future or now uh, people should have enough nutrition. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech, just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse if you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. If I said non-toxic pest prevention, the International Space Station, and ag tech, would you be interested? I know I would. This is a fun one. We've got a world leader on the program, Dr. Fatma Kaplan. She's the co-founder and CEO of Ferome, a company trying to help solve the world's food crisis, it's a big one, and feed the growing world population. Farmers need a non-toxic way to control their pests, and they're doing just that. She's an accomplished scientist with experience in biology and chemistry focused on isolating biologically active compounds. She discovered the first sex pheromone of nematodes, these tiny little things which we will discuss and how you can use that and its parasitic behavior to create a beneficial flywheel, so to speak, for farmers. She's been published in numerous high-impact publications, cited in textbooks, worked as a scientist at NASA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and much, much more. In today's episode, we'll discuss the secret to pesticide-free agriculture and food and why that is such an important problem, how we can use agritech to combat climate change, the trouble with biotech fundraising, what risk Fatma's most worried about from a biotech perspective, how to improve education for the better and make science cool again, what the future lo really looks like for clean meat and why it still requires plants, and why GMOs will play an increasingly large role in humanity's future. 
we dive deep into the science on this one, guys. But the science is where we're headed, what's needed to be understood. And of course, we get outside of the weeds to talk about the bigger picture. I know you guys are going to love this one. So without further ado, I give you Fatma Kaplan. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So you have an incredibly interesting mission in terms of trying to make agriculture both more sustainable and efficient long-term. And I got to imagine there's some kind of story. So what led you here? Well, I come from an agriculture background. My grandparents were farmers and they also valued education. So they really encouraged the daughters, actually not just the daughters, but the sons, everyone to have a higher education. So they knew the farming, the value of the farming, and at the same time, value of education. So I went to College of Ag because I know a lot more about it. And I love the Ag too. I love nature. Then I was very fortunate. Well, let me start with the unfortunate part. Sometimes when you see unfortunate things, they're not really actually the unfortunate. It can lead to very fortunate things. So when I graduated uh, college, I'm originally from Turkey, and I learned that there were 25,000 agriculture engineers just like me did not have a job. There wasn't enough <laughs> job to cover 25,000 agriculture engineers. And I thought, hmm, maybe I can do master's and learn about plant breeding because I knew the problems with agriculture and to improve the yield. Then I heard about an opportunity where I could actually come to United States, do my PhD, learn about how to do research and make the plants more tolerant to pests and uh, pathogens. And then I took this opportunity and I had a fellowship to come to U.S. and I was very fortunate in the U.S. And then uh, I worked on plant molecular and cellular biology and learned how to speed up this breeding process. And then I learned about metabolites and I really loved the research. And I thought, oh, you know, I could still help agriculture maybe from the academic environment. And I've seen many of the scientists, they worked in academia and their research came through as practical applications. And I thought this is a really great opportunity. Right about the time I graduated and I had this great post, uh, postdoctoral opportunity where I could identify novel compounds and then go back to genetics and hoping that uh, try to breed uh, the plants. But I also love this project because it was about nematodes. And when I was in grad, uh, undergraduate and the Turkish vineyards were nearly wiped out by nematodes. These are the plant parasitic nematodes, the bad guys, they suck on the plant food. Well, so, okay. quick clarifying question for people that aren't super into the field. What is a nematode? Nematode is a roundworms, or nematodes are roundworms. And many people are familiar with the segmented roundworms, but these are non-segmented roundworms. They can be microscopic. Those are the ones we are working with microscopic roundworms, and we work actually with good nematodes and the bad nematodes. This is kind of like bacteria. There are good bacteria that's good for our guts, and there are bad bacteria that's bad for us because they make us sick. So it turns out that nematodes are the same. These microscopic roundworms, there are good ones. They attack insect pests. So therefore, they're good for us because we can use them as biological control to control insect pests. And there are bad ones. Those are the ones that attack plants and humans and pretty much um, our animals. Those need to be controlled. It's like everything in, in nature and in technology. There's, it's a double-edged sword. 
So you found yes. you found a new and unique way to protect plants and agriculture without really needing the crazy amounts of pesticides. Exactly. So during my postdoc, I identified the first sex pheromone of C. elegans. This is a model nematode. It doesn't harm anything. They feed on the bacteria. And this was a big controversy uh, for decades, whether C. elegans had a of sex pheromone because they're hermaphrodites. They don't actually need sexual reproduction. But there was an advantage if they did. So we published this work in Nature. Then USDA unit, we were collaborated, collaborating, hired me because it was right about the time methyl bromide, which is a toxic, odorless chemical, was removed from the market due to environmental hazards and the, um, affecting the ozone layer. And the farmers needed help to control plant parasitic nematodes, these bad guys. And this particular USDA unit were expert using in insect pheromones and how they could use to control insect pests. So they were expert using insect pheromones, and I was the new person who's expert with the nematode pheromones, this new field. They said, well, we could apply many of the techniques we learned from insect pheromone work to nematode pheromones, and this would be a novel way of controlling plant parasitic nematodes. So let me see. Let me see if I can if I can summarize or if I'm following you so far. So the the idea is living beings release sex hormones. Like I remember growing up, you used to see the Axe body spray infused with fe- male pheromones, and the, that was always a funny thing. But is is the is the concept behind the the technology more or less? Let's have a let's have a pheromone that makes Matt look incredibly uglier than he is, so girls will be repelled from him, and we don't have to worry about our plants getting destroyed. Kind of deal. Well, but the insects pheromone, the idea was to attract the males and trap them and remove them out of circulation so there are no males, no reproduction. So it's a little bit mean way of looking at it, not really making that, the males ugly. I think that would be a little better, more uh, humane version of it. Uh, so the idea was actually to trap the males so if there are no males, uh, there, so there would be no reproduction. Unfortunately, the nematode we targeted didn't need the males, so it was reproducing <laughs> by itself. So we had to find a different solution. So we looked at whether we had other behaviors we could control with the, uh, with the uh, pheromones, and one of the behavior was dispersal behavior. In this case, we could tell the nematodes there are no food, the food is gone, there are too many nematodes, they need to go someplace else. So this would be, in a way, repelled. So this would be what you mentioned, kind of, but in a different sense. <laughs> the friendlier way to do it. Why yes, is, friendlier. Why is this a big issue in terms of food spoilage worldwide, destruction of habitats, etc.? What, uh, what are some of the stats? I'm sure you're more into this field. Without the pest control, farmers would lose 30 to 80% of their crop. So depending on what pest. So if we can actually protect right at the beginning, if we have a lot of yield, that will trickle down. And another way is, this is a very eco-friendly solution, particularly um, pheromones are effective at very low concentration. And at the same time, they degrade, they don't stay in the environment too long. And we are using also natural predators, in this case for the insect control, for the uh, good nematodes. These are the good nematodes, we make them better by pesticide agents. They're put in the field anyway, but now we can reduce, even reduce their number, and we can make them more effective. And they're, because they're good nematodes, they're also a healthy ecosystem, soil ecosystem. 
So we are doing everything in a harmony without disturbing too much the environment. It is that is our look and which angle, is, which is a huge deal because we've seen we've seen a lot of backlash from two different things: the desecration, so to speak, of the soil microbiome in terms of possible implications on health of what we're eating, and then on the flip side, I know a lot of people are up in arms about GMOs, which I think is is silly to label something as solely one thing and not to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But it's essentially when you're dealing with substances, primarily uh, primarily pesticides, we're not supposed to eat pesticides. You're, you're, yeah, the, the, it's terrible. What What's it like working in a field where you're kind of trying to disrupt a lot of the big and arguably dirty players? In our case, we are in a way very lucky. Many of the biopesticide companies are a lot more friendly and the ones we interacted are a lot more friendly. The targets we, uh, we target, the insects we target already develop resistance to chemical pesticides. So farmers do not have option of using chemicals anymore. One of the first target we have is thrips. It's an insect and develop resistance to chemical pesticides. So it doesn't really matter what chemical they use from the chemical pesticide companies. It's not going to work. And farmers have to use biological. And there is one uh, portion that these beneficial nematodes are used. So that's one of them we are targeting. And there are some farmers who would like to use organic. And our product actually targets organic farmers. And at the same time, it can be used with other um other uh, integrated pest management with other chemicals. For example, since we are using the pheromones when we want to repel, we are targeting seed treatment, the seed coat, and where they can be used with other chemicals too. Let's say they have fungicides for the uh, nematodes, we can add the pheromones. So they would be compatible. How much money would you need to create more natural pest solutions like this to, let's say, 80% of the world's crops? If you wanted to expand across corn and wheat and soy, etc., how much time, energy, and funding do you think something like that would take? That's a very good question. Um, product development, particularly the kind of product we are doing, the pest control, it is expensive. It is not very cheap. And I would say if you have a lot of support, that could be cheaper, probably four or five uh, million dollars in at least three to four years, I would say. But this is still a lot less than chemical pesticide development, which require about 200 million and 10 years. So still biological control agents and developing them is a lot cheaper. Because you can look at what already exists and mimic that. Yes, that is one of them because we already have a guidance in nature. So if it if it is that doable, why isn't it done? Ah, that's a very good question. See, with the chemical pesticide, it is, uh, it's kind of like one fits all. It kills pretty much everything. It kills kills everything, yeah. So if you just... (laughs) Exactly. Normally it is good, but guess what? When you kill everything, you're also killing the good ones. When you kill the good ones, now you're developing, creating a pest that wasn't a pest before because you just killed their predator. Normally, that was controlled, so it creates a more problem. But still, on the surface, you're killing everybody without any discrimination. With the biological control, yes, some of them are one, uh, one-to-one, and some of them target, um, let's say, small group of pests, depending on what you're targeting. So it would be small group of uh, pests. 
So then every every new every new product would be in in essence its own product. It would take the iteration cycle to go through that, but then once you had that, you would have something that was sustainable, natural, and yes. scalable. Uh, for example, the good nematodes we are using, there are c- three commercial species, and one of them controls about five to eight, another one controls five to eight species. But that doesn't mean, you know, you will see all 10 insect pests in one field. And you'll probably see uh, several of them, and it can control. And you need a different layer of different shields yeah. for each of the attackers. Yeah, because you don't, you know, you're not provide prescribing. It's kind of like prescribing. You're not dropping Agent, or- or Agent Orange on Vietnam. Exactly. To- With biologicals, you know, you're producing it and it's still, you know, you have a limited target. And if you had been, let's say, one drug that works for everything and you need to have one production method and that's enough. And uh, then you could work on it and we can reduce the cost. But it's not like that. Yeah, I'm not super thrilled about eating something that kills everything. I'm not sure I'm not, if that's just me. <laughs> I'm not either. Where do you fall on the genetically modified debate when it comes to modifying modifying foods for the future? Not on the, I think we can agree that modifying them so we can make terrible pesticides that probably nothing should be touching is not a good idea. But what about just the essence of modifying food? Because I feel like people don't realize that they need to separate those two. It depends on what kind of gene is edited or what kind of gene is inserted in the plants. I think it should be looked at uh, case by case. And what is the benefit for the humans? For example, the golden rice in this case that was providing a vitamin uh, to people and it wasn't adding anything. I would say for each case should be looked at uh, individually. So you would, you would, anyone who has a blanket, this is good or this is bad is kind of ignorant on the topic as a whole? Uh, I think they need to be informed before they make a decision because there's a lot of uh, publicity around GMO and it's, and without giving it context, what was bad or what was good about it. So I think people should be given information and then they can make a decision about it. It's kind of like saying all the bacteria are bad. We did that. We screwed that one up big time. (laughs) Yes. And then we have antibiotic resistance and all the nematodes are bad, but we know there are good ones and the bad ones. Mm -hmm. And America is definitely the most cleanliness focused of hygiene. And we're also probably the sickest country of the first world countries because we took out all the bacteria. Oh, so in terms of in terms of where we're headed, what has you most excited on the biotech space? Not just what you're working on, but all the things that you come in contact with being in California and working in the field that you're in. Let me see. The very popular area is indoor agriculture or slash urban agriculture. And we think this is a good development for our product development because it's a really increasing getting a really big field where we can do a lot of contribution because our first target is actually greenhouse growers market. Guess where that one stands? It is in the urban or indoor agriculture and many of the areas that are in a controlled environment. And that is where we want to get into the market. So this is a good and exciting. And we also have interstellar agriculture project and we are very excited about it. (laughs) 
Interstellar, do you mean outer space? Yes, we have a recent project. We uh, wrote a grant to uh, International Space Station and we got funding to send our good nematodes to stay at uh, the ISS to do um, biocontrol in space. And it is going to be the first agriculture biocontrol in space to see actually whether these good nematodes can go through the soil, find their target insect in microgravity and infect the insect and whether they produce the same kind of pheromone they produce on Earth or they're producing different kind of pheromone. And also look at it, how does um, the insect immune system would respond to nematodes? Would they be more uh, vigorous or uh, would it be weaker? So there are many questions we will be answering and the knowledge we learned from there, we are going to be using it for our current product development. Yeah, because there's not a whole lot to eat in space, both from a meat and a a vegetable perspective. We're going to have to grow what we eat. Yes, exactly. If we're going to colonize, which is NASA's mission in the future, the moon and the Mars, we have to be able to grow the food. And the second thing is we can't really use chemicals and pesticides in space. Guess what? We have a limited air. If the air gets toxic, we can't just purge the air. Where are we going to get it? Mm -hmm. So you have to use something eco-friendly. And I got to imagine it would be, I don't know what I'm going with there, but yeah. If it, <laughs> oh. if, there's, so, there's so many problems doing it here on Earth and it, in space, everything is 10 times harder at least. Exactly. So what do, you, what do you think about the clean meat movement in terms of where we're headed engineering, not just plant organisms, but actual living protein-ish tissue to consume? This is another thing. We're not eating meat in space unless we do clean meat or some type of veggie meat. But the cell-cultured meat, it's, it, it's an interesting movement. Actually, I was at Indie Bio Accelerator, so uh, one of our favorite companies there, Finless Food. Uh, you have interviewed him. I looked at, uh, I looked at it. Yeah, it was a great and, one. Yes, Memphis Meat was one of them. I think it's a, a quite different move. So we'll see how things unravel, because if you look at the current meat industry, how they're operating, would things change? But at the end, we still need the energy harvested from the plants. We still need the solar energy because whether it's cell culture or regular animal-based uh, meat, we all harvest the energy from sunlight because yeah. we feed the uh, animals through plants, which harvest the solar energy. And even with the cell cultured meat, where is the energy coming from? That is whether it's plant-based, but somehow we have to feed these cells and we have to get the energy that is again harvested from the solar energy. Energy is always conserved. What worries you the most about the future of food, food safety, starvation worldwide, etc.? It's actually surprising. One of the things I was looking at it, you know, with many of the investor pitches, um, there are about 900, if I don't remember it wrong, 900 million people go to bed hungry. And I thought this was really, really unbelievable. Considering how much the world is developed and there are so many techniques we developed to increase the yield and productivity. And we still have people in the world who go to bed hungry. To me, it was really unthinkable. But there is. So um, we have to do something about it that to make sure that in the future or now, uh, people should have enough nutrition. 
Surprisingly, you would think this is always happening in the developing countries or underdeveloped countries. There are a lot in our backyard. When I was in San Francisco, <laughs> there were a lot. And we initially started our company in Florida. And where we lived, actually, there were a lot of homeless people. My lab manager was uh, very interested in helping. And during her after hours, she would work with the community garden and where she would help a lot of uh, homeless people. Many of them actually had health problems. And actually, their main problem was the nutrition, getting a nutritious food, not just the food, but having a nutritious food. Yeah, McDonald's will kill you and it will definitely speed it up. I think in some ways. How do we handle that, that the cheapest food is the least healthy and it's kind of, sorry if you're poor, but you're going to have to deal with it? I don't know. I think we have to find some other ways to make sure that people in the world and in our backyard uh, should be able to uh, have nutritious food, not just something that just go into their mouth. What does that look like? And you're in California now. California has something like a third of the homeless people in the U.S. And part of it's because it's beautiful, but part of it's also because it's incredibly expensive and kind of cutthroat as well in, in a sense. How do, we, how do we deal with those problems? Is it universal housing? I think we definitely need universal health care. That's obvious. I think so. Healthcare should be able to open to everyone. At least that is uh, my own feeling, that nobody should have to worry about it. And San Francisco was a very interesting city. I didn't really expect uh, some of the particularly homeless population. We met many of the people who were just uh, very, well, how do you say, very honest citizens. And they said one day, and the housing price really went up. And after the tech boom and people just, a landlord just pushed them out and they were retired and they couldn't recover. And I thought that should not have happened to them. So I think we should have more social safety network that would actually help people. You know, everyone has an up and down, you know, there's sometimes, you know, you get to earn a lot and you save for the future or you may not have enough to save for future, but when things happen catastrophic, there should be enough social safety net that can help those people so they can bounce back until they get a new opportunity. Yeah, it's dangerous because San Francisco is the extremization of the U.S. And really, from what I've heard, it's getting not so nice to be there. And it's kind of like San Francisco is becoming India. We have incredible wealth next to incredible poverty and we just don't give a shit. I don't know. I think there are a lot of people who does. Yes, there are um, people who doesn't, but there are a lot of people who do care. You know, you talk to Mike Seldon. He's one of those people. We do. Uh, there is another group uh, by a captive. They, uh, there's a small group of people. There are probably more, but they also care about the equal opportunity and opportunity for everyone. I want to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company we use to get our podcast cover art done. They have a new service, Brand Crowd, that allows you to get awesome designs for logos from designers around the world. If you go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd, you can enter in your brand information, find out a little bit more, and see what type of awesome designs they come up with for you. If you're rebranding or starting a new business, you know that logo is incredibly important. And you want it to stand out, especially in this crowd of way too much and me too type businesses. Disruptors.fm slash brand crowd for more details. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D. 
Again, supporting them supports us and allows us to make this more sustainable. And now, back to the program. What was the most shocking thing for you when you moved here from Turkey? Let's see. I would say the individualism as opposed to supporting and growing with the community, caring about the community, being part of the community versus at least in Turkey, we were a lot more community oriented and you cared about your neighbor and with their well-being versus over here, it's more individualistic. It's me, me, me. (laughs) Me comes first versus, oh, us come first versus me come first. Me come first and second. I think that uh, that's just what we were talking about as well. It's that it's that issue, and I think the U.S. is going to have troubles unless they're able to address that going forward, especially as we have more automation. I think it is also uh, affecting individuals too. If you read about some of the university and the younger generation who's committing suicide because they don't really have a support system. When you do me first and second, and you're kind of not really bonding with other people around you, and that makes it more difficult. When things are great, yeah, that is great, but things never go great. You know, you always have good times and the bad times. What do you do those times? Where is the fallback? And where is the shoulder you can cry when things doesn't go right? Yeah, for a lot of people, that used to be community or the church, and communities have gone quite a bit away in the church well people are more educated now so that's going the same direction it's uh it's hard Uh, in california surprisingly i actually found well we're in davis it could be davis too i found actually a lot of friendly people they do help and at schools they are i have kids they go to uh, school so the teachers are very caring i was really amazed and interest uh, uh surprised and they care about the students and how they learn differently. They accommodate them and they're a lot gentler <laughs> to guide them. That's always a help. What, uh, what do you want your kids to learn the most if you could give them one skill going forward or influence their education in some way? I think having balance as opposed to just focusing on one thing. You know, work is important, but your life is important. The times you spent with work, the time you spent with family. And as a person, we are a whole. We are interested in science. They're definitely science-oriented because I'm a scientist. We talk about science all the time on a breakfast table, too. It's like, oh, can we make this thing? And I said, well, let me think about it. Hey, I heard about this one. I would like to build this thing. And so, and I said, well, this is good. You can do science. You can do work. But you have to have your family and allocating time and have a lot more balanced life and be a whole person as opposed to just the work and work defines you versus the number of things that should define you. What else defines you besides work and being a mom? Um, We do have a lot of hobbies and we are very community oriented and help others and not just ourselves. (laughs) What's it like being a biotech entrepreneur trying to raise money in an industry that's super hard to do so. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) That is very challenging. Very challenging. Our advantage was, let's see, in a way, we didn't really think about all of the risk. I think in some ways that was advantageous, (laughs) particularly uh, the technical risk. And at the same time, we took one risk at a time, I would say, in some ways. We utilize all of the resources that 
was available, incubators, accelerators, mentorship programs. So uh, those resources helped us to utilize the amount of money we raised, and that got us a lot longer way. And we also looked at what we have and what is available to us versus, oh, we would like to do this thing, but we don't have this and this and this and this versus we had the list of, oh, we would like to accomplish this and we have this and this and this and this. These are the couple of things we don't have it, but how can we make it happen if we can't have these? Can those things could stop us or how can we circumvent our handicap? That would be the money, the major issue. How can we do this a lot less? Duct tape it together. (laughs) Let's say Bayer Monsanto comes to you with a $100 million offer to buy the company and just get rid of the technology. What do you do? Uh, I prefer that they didn't do that. (laughs) I, um, you know, surprisingly, I did have people reached out from Bayer, but they were uh, more interested in our technology too. The reason is uh, there are biologicals in many of these companies that they would like to use, and our product actually enhances their product. And we do have one agreement, MTA, we recently signed with another biological company. They have a biological for nematicides, and they're interested in using their nematicides with our pheromone product. Because with the pheromones, what we can do is we can repel the uh, nematodes, but this is not a regular repellent, for example. With the regular regular repellent, you have the repellent here and the nematodes would be waiting. When the repellent degrades, they will go in and attack the plants. With the pheromones, they can sense the uh, pheromones and they say, oh, this is too crowded. Now they make a decision to go away. So whether the pheromone degrades or not, it doesn't really matter. And we can do this thing at low temperature or high temperature. Many of the biologicals when you have, let's say, bacteria that kills the nematodes, if it doesn't work at low temperature, now the pheromone comes in. It repels the nematodes. By the time temperature goes up, now we have the biological there, another type of biological. If the nematodes ever come back, they can kill it. Or they can reduce the number of nematodes because we don't really know when you put the seeds in the field, you don't really know how many nematodes they're going to be exposed to. Maybe the amount of biological, let's say, bacteria is there good enough to kill 10,000. But what if you have 20,000 nematodes? Now the pheromone can repel, let's say, half of it. Now your biological can be effective. What's it like so doing? They are, Go ahead. Yeah. So they are interested in our product, not really trying to kill, but uh, to improve and enhance their own product. We've been scraping your email with Facebook. They give us all your data. We, uh, <laughs> we got all the good stuff. What... um. What's it like going from being in the university setting to founding a business? Oh, this was very interesting. (laughs) The good thing is within the university, we always have a structure. And within the university, we learned how to design a project and have a vision and how to make a roadmap, which is called grants. Now, when you have grants, you have a roadmap, how to accomplish your goal. And when we do that, we have a set of skills, how to write and explain and to raise funds. And there are actually many scientists within the government system and the university system, they develop products. They do the early stage, the phase one, phase two uh, trials. Now they're going to commercialize. Now they need the commercial company. So we work with those scientists initially. We initially thought actually we could write grants and finish up everything with that because we were in the university system. (laughs) And once we actually got the funding, it's like, (gasps) 
oh, we actually need the structure that this infrastructure university always provided us and all the equipment and everything. Oh, what do we do now? Well, we are also a PhDs that we solve always the problems. So now the problem solving skill comes in. We thought, well, we solved many problems that we didn't even see. We had a way of measuring it. So how can we solve this problem? We need an infrastructure that requires money, but we don't really know whether this technology is going to work. Is it really worth to invest that money into infrastructure? And our priority was to get the technology to have the proof of concept, and our priority was to get the proof of concept, not the infrastructure. So we thought, okay, what is our next option? Then we found the incubators, which had the infrastructure that we needed. So we didn't build anything from the structure, uh, from the scratch. And they also had shared equipment. So that is what we moved forward, the incubators. Then uh, we needed some more money. So we synergized it with accelerators. Then it came in, okay, now we are moving forward with the proof of concept. Now we need the um, customers. And the demonstrations, how do we do that? So we decided some of the things to take one step at a time and at the same time prepare pitch decks that we could be more appealing to general audience. That was a challenge from academia to business world. How do we express that? So those were challenges. And raising funny, uh, raising funds from investors, that was challenging because we are not used to it. So we are good at uh, grant funding, but we were not very good at raising funds from investors. So we got the mentorship programs came in. So they helped us out. And we also got a couple of business advisors who are helping us out currently. So is that the way to do it? If you're coming out of university, apply for some grants, get something kind of sort of working, find an incubator, an accelerator, and have them help you into figuring out what the hell you're doing to raise money and build something real. That's a very good question. That is how we did it. But when I think about it, uh, how could I uh, done this thing differently? And when I've seen many of the other startups who have technology, the biotech technology, I don't think there's a right way of doing it. And there are multiple ways and a number of ways you can be successful. If you had funding up front from a group of angels, that's the right way of start too. <laughs> And I've seen at UC Davis, they have a venture catalyst program. They see uh, uh, potential technologies and they help them out. They have internal funding system and they have incubators and a bench space. It's a different type of incubator. They started that way. That's the right way too. I don't think there's right or wrong way, but incubators and accelerators definitely help. As long as it's a good one. Yes, because there is this money barrier there. And for the infrastructure, that really reduces that barrier. At least it was for us. So you worked at NASA. What did you do? I was actually working on high CO2 uh, levels and how does that affect plants? Because if you go to International Space Station or enclosed spaces, the CO2 level can go up really fast to 10,000 ppm. Even though increased CO2 is good for plants because they can produce more carbons, it turns out that increasing it to 10,000 or 4,000 ppm is not really that good. It was actually toxic to plants. And so I was working on the plant yield and productivity in closed space so we could grow plants in space. And then that brings up the obvious climate change and the effects of both 
increased CO2 and increased temperature on plant yields worldwide. Yes. Does that, how, how much does that worry you? Let's see. It will have a lot of effect. It's not just a plant yield reduction. We will have different kind of insects. For example, and same thing with the nematodes, they might start growing in places that uh, they wouldn't grow before. I had an interview way in the past in Canada, again, this climate change, uh, and they didn't really have nematode problems, but because the climate is getting better, so the plant parasitic nematodes are also going up there. So we will have insect problems that we didn't have before in certain locations. So I think... There are a lot of smart people, and we will find a solution. But if we can prevent, that would be better. It would be a lot easier to solve. If we ignore it, it will come, and then we will be paying a lot more to fix it. <laughs> if we can fix it. A lot more than money as well. Yes. Yeah, it's one, it's one of those things where ignorance is bliss until it's not. So I think ignorance is not bliss. Maybe yes. that's just me being a little bit ironic. What do you think about the whole anti-science movement, speaking of? Oh, <laughs> anti-science movement. I think science is really important. Despite the difficulties in getting science positions, I think uh, many of the... It teaches a lot more thinking analytically, and our citizens should be able to learn and analyze and make a decision. It is very important to make decisions and how we make decisions. And I was wishing that we had a lot more science-oriented. And as a scientist, I think we all have the duty of reaching out. And I think uh, if more scientists are able to reach out and communicate, that might help. But I think it is not just one scientist can solve the problem. I think it is a community that can solve the problem. Yeah, it's tough because scientists are just, in general, such bad communicators. And even worse, they don't really think about it. That is true. They're normally introvert people. They're super Science introvert. requires a lot of working alone. See, if you are not introvert, it's going to be very hard to do science. You have to be a little bit introvert somewhere in that spectrum. So let's assume scientists can't solve the problem. How do we solve the problem today? How do we make science cool? What would you change if I gave you a magic wand or two? Oh, gosh, you're really asking a tough question. <laughs> I think we should get a lot of people on science. Uh, let's see. Maybe we can increase these science jobs. And instead of uh, the trained scientists, we only put them in academia versus we should also put them in science policy and science outreach. And I think we should start from the beginning, right at the schools. And education comes in very early on. And we should make our kids love science. I think California is doing a really great job with that. And I've seen the third graders having, you know, hatching chicks, and they get to see the whole development and the temperature, and they all love the whole thing. And they also know it is, uh, you know, at the end, nice and cute and fuzzy things, yellow things comes out. <laughs> and they feed them and they have this direct attachment. Hey, this is science. They hatched trout um, eggs and they had little trouts and they took it to the river. And, you know, that's part of the science too. And they had the silkworms and they fed the silkworms <laughs> and they turned into cocoon. They harvested the silk. 
and they got to see moth. That is this, is, this is third grade. This is way better. Than yes, this is. Uh, yes, I. I had my uh, son was gifted, and he was in gifted program in Florida. And I thought, and my uh, daughter is dyslexic. She's smart, but she has a hard time reading and learning to read fast. So she didn't get into gifted program. And when we moved them over here, and I thought, wow, she's having way better education than my gifted one did in Florida. It was even better than the gifted programs in Florida. They're doing a really amazing job uh, with science. You know, math is the same. They were very, they make the kids like uh, science, and they're always relating it to real life. You know, they get to see the flowers, they get to see, you know, fish. And now they get to see the development and relating to real life. Now, how could how could you make science part of your life better than what they're doing here? That's that's the question. Let's push even farther. Let's say I give you a magic wand to change education. You can kill one class and add a new one. What do you change? Oh, let's see. Uh, I can give an example where I don't have to kill, but the observation is. When we were in Florida, uh, I'll say recess was an important one that was cut out because they thought the students should just uh, not have recess because it's a waste of time, but your brain needs a break. So that was not given. The arts were um, removed, but as a human, we need art. The music class, the painting, and many of the art classes were removed. And I thought, you know, you can't just separate that either. You need all of it, art, science, math, and pretty much the whole curriculum because that makes the whole education because they're all related. So here they have it all, and it makes a pretty good um, education system. And the kids are happy to go to school as opposed to just doing one particular thing that they can get bored. Yeah, it's it's so hard talking about education and most parents don't want to do experiments with their kids because you know what? Damn it, this is my kid. You're not going to experiment on my kid, right? Exactly. But as a whole, I think uh, the arts is very important and the things they learn. For example, uh, my son is in, was in a band. It, uh, one of the things is when you just play solo, you don't have to worry about your surrounding. But when you work in a band and when you're playing, you have to be what you uh, know what you're doing, but at the same time, you have to know what others are playing and adjust it accordingly. It's not just you and it's the whole group. And adjusting both is very difficult uh, skill. They may or may not uh, gotten that skill, but it teaches a different skill. For example, if you're working in a place, working by yourself is one thing, but working in a group is a different dynamic. So they're learning that, and that is not taught, probably. You can't really learn it. Well, they do teamwork, but in a music class, you wouldn't really think that is something is teaching, but it does teach a teamwork there. Yeah, it's crazy, and surroundings, and I imagine discipline when you screw up and everyone yeah. notices. Yeah. So, so you're listening and adjusting, synthesizing what's happening there, and then adjusting your own actions. That, that is skill. What about, what about double classes? So people have gym class while something else is going on or something thereabouts where you're getting active while also learning. I think combining disciplines is, mm -hmm. is smart. So if you can bring science together with history so you're learning about science that happened 
in history. Imagine that. That might exactly. be a beneficial thing. But what about the what about the other side of things, making it an active class? Oh, that would be really fun. And having it, you know, being inside the project, that's actually, it would make it part of your life. I think that would be a really good education. Well, might be able to cut down on uh, diabetes and obesity as well. What, uh, what technology are you most worried about? It is not really technology I worry about. And I think the, all of the technology is a good thing. I think how you use it is more important. Uh, the, you know, the same, you can develop a technology for a good thing and you have good intentions, but the same technology can be used for multiple things. It always is. Uh, yes, it always is. But I think just worrying about the technology and shutting up is one thing, but regulating the technology might be a better way. And you can, we can have a technology, it could be very promising. And if we know it can have downsides and it can be used for not desirable approaches, that way it can be regulated. Just fearing about the technology and shutting down is not going to solve it because technology is going to happen. How do we regulate it effectively without having the regulators be the ones who come up with the rules? Because I mean, we saw the Zuckerberg hearings. We've seen plenty of other examples where regulators try to do something real smart, but they do it too quick and they don't actually think about it and they have no clue what's going on and they screw things up even worse. Oh, you're getting into the politics end. <laughs> so that would be a different dynamic. I don't really know how you could do that, but the citizens can do a lot. Citizens can do a lot. And everyone cares about the PR and... Sometimes you think one person can't do, but you'll never know. Zuckerberg, one person, <laughs> he can do a lot. Why not you? I know, so right? I think it, it is determination and how passionately people feel about it. I'm a little bit of luck, but I think uh, thinking about the regulation right at the beginning would be the right place. Even though we might have good intentions when we are developing a technology, but if we can think about what other ways they can be used and it should be regulated, then some of those things can be prevented. But it's not going to prevent everything because when one technology is developing, there are other technologies are developed you know, in parallel. We can't predict everything. But we can think about the consequences. I remember when I was younger, there were two jobs that I thought would be the coolest in the world. I didn't really want any other job. But if I could be a fake hitman or a fake robber, and simulate this for someone so we have some high-profile person that wants to test out their bodyguard service or someone who wants to test out their home security, be the person who tests that out to figure out the flaws, that would be the coolest job in the world. Well, it could be the same deal with technology. Instead of having purely builders and founders building, it would be interesting to have a devil's advocate panel that's forced on government or forced somewhere where they have these type of well, let's try to figure out everything that could and will go wrong and just make a big long list so at least we've thought and talked about it. That is true. They may or may not come true, but at least we thought about it because there are so many parallel technologies will be developed. So people may not need those things, but at least if we thought about it, oh, you know, here are the, some of the fail safes. We should put it in the system. That if something goes wrong, we know it will not fail. At least it will always be used the way we hoped. <laughs> one, of the you know, one of the dangerous is that it, coming up with a list, though, is kind of assuming, oh, we came up with everything. But 
you never really see something until it's hindsight. Oh, yes, definitely. It's, uh, it's an interesting topic in question. One thing you said that I should ask you about is founding a business and finding, working with, and succeeding with partners. Yes, that is really important. Uh, we, we were very fortunate because when I first heard about this, uh, when I was working on uh, pheromones, I worked on the good nematodes too. And when I published a paper and I said, well, their dispersal behavior is regulated by pheromones. And I met another scientist from a different USDA, and he said, you know, th- there's a potential to use this one and to improve the effectiveness of these beneficial nematodes. And I thought, I thought about it. Now I have a person who's working with the farmers and knew the problems, and he also thought about uh, the same thing. And I thought, this is really great. So he also had a partner, uh, a collaborator, long-term collaborator. We said, well, let's write a grant. And that actually made a really great team because we had such a small amount of funding and we made it go a very long way. Within two years, we were able to publish, actually, it came out last week, our proof of concept trials. And everyone worked on the projects diligently when they needed to be provided the help. Congrats and on publishing. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, now we have results that we can take it to investors too because we wrote the phase two grant for manufacturing toward manufacturing uh, here is a data set that they don't really have to worry, worry about how good it is because now we have the scientists who are qualified to review and assess the quality of the data and they said it is good now it is published and we have a good uh, support and at the same time when we deal with the biologicals you want to have additional publications uh, for teaching how the effectiveness work. So it works for many of the things for us uh, to move forward. And we can utilize it to educate the farmers and how uh, this product can be used and at the same time for fundraising. But this all uh, goes back to uh, having the right partners. I have run, even when I was in grad school, collaborative projects internationally and within the continental U.S. And when you have the good collaborators and the partners, everything goes very smoothly and it works really great. And I also had very interesting collaborators. You know, sometimes people lose their interest (laughs) in the project. So what do you do? Or (laughs) then um, they weren't as productive. And we had the same uh, policy when we started the company. We should pick the people who really like it. And same thing actually with our employees too, that they like the project and they're interested in bringing something uh, to the market, something novel and new. And I should mention about my lab manager. She was really great and she loved the nematodes and working with them. That made a big difference too. The team and the environment, the culture is pretty much everything. What's it it like going through the grant process as a scientist for people that aren't familiar? They should be familiar. (laughs) um, If they're in grad school, they should be familiar. If they're not, they may not be, but they should make themselves familiar. When I started graduate school, the first thing I noticed, without money, no science, no money, no science. (laughs) So where does money come from? Grant funding. So they should be able to realize the importance of it. But it doesn't just do the money. It also helps you 
to have a guideline. In business world, when we raise money, people usually say, what's your milestones? See, with the grants, you do have milestones. You have a plan what you're going to do with that money you raise. So for us, when people ask, uh, what's your milestones and where are you going to spend money? We have a pretty good plan because we have a training that here's the project we're going to do. Here's how much it would cost. And here are the uh, consumable expenses. And here are the people we need and how much area we need, whether it's field trial or anything else. That's why actually we're fairly good at estimating how much it would cost or what other resources we need. Because you have to think about it when you write grants. How are you going to accomplish it? Do you have resources? What resources you don't have? And how much money you need? Who do you need? So same thing uh, with the business aspect. So we have to think about the same thing. You got to figure it all out ahead of time. How long did it take you? for the grant writing process from start to getting some cash? And how many grants did you apply for? Oh, uh, (laughs) that would take time. Uh, Thinking about it and writing a grant usually takes about three to six months, writing a really good grant, comprehensive. And once you apply, it takes about 10 months. It depends on whether you're the primary. If you're primary, within a year, you should be able to uh, get your funding. Because it has a lot of paperwork. Once you hear the award, that's going to take another six months to put together additional sets of um, paperwork. If you're sub-awardee, you might write a grant. You might be part of the co-project uh, project director, but you may not be the primary institution. If it's a sub-award, that would take a year and a half. So it requires a lot of planning. Which is almost the opposite of a startup. You kind of have to move fast and break things. Actually, in our case, Making plans help because with the biotech, there is the speed, but with biotechnology, you need to have skilled people. You cannot just turn over people because otherwise your experiments are not going to work because you need that knowledge and the experience. In our case, planning helped because before we started the company, we started thinking about this company in 2012. And we did write and we had plans for multiple uh, grants and how we could support this project. Some of them directly supported the project. Some of them peripherally supported the product development. Then we actually attacked all of the grants all at the same time. And once we got funding, then we hired. But in the meantime, we talked to people and we were recruiting them. And we also had different kind of grants. Some of them were a little faster having the funds versus some of them a little slower. So we diversified that too. But at the same time, getting an accelerator fund from IndieBio made a big difference. That was fast. Same thing with investor funding. You talk to people, it can take at least six months to a year. And uh, same thing with the big companies. You might have strategic partnership. The time you talk to them, you get the money maybe a year or two. So you still need to think about long-term and the short-term. But when you have long-term plan, when things go, ra- uh, go wrong, you can actually fix it. You'll see it, what's going on. Survival, that's one of the one of the names of the game, especially with startups. That is true. We are still on the, what you call, Death Valley. <laughs> it's okay. You'll, you'll get through there. You're in California, right? That is true. You know, the funding-wise, actually, you're right. Uh, we looked at many locations. Where should we locate? Where should we locate? And we thought where we are close to San Francisco would still be the best place. And we thought we might get a lot of rejection. But when you have a lot of it around, even if you do get a lot of rejection, a couple of yes will help. But when you don't have a lot of funding sources, even if you do get few rejections, there weren't whole a lot. 
that few rejections could be 80% of the rejection versus few, yeah. Go ahead. few hundred rejection might still be 30% of the rejection <laughs> of the money pool. What do you think about the, the arbitrage of living somewhere else and then commuting into San Francisco for investor stuff? That's actually what we do. California, one of the reasons we moved to Davis is we looked at the transportation and they have a really great transportation system. We can do day trips and it's uh, Amtrak is really great and they do have a great transportation bus system and they bought uh, the train system in San Francisco. Very convenient. Most of the places you can walk to. That is mostly what we do. Even for the conferences, if we needed to go, we do day trips. Otherwise, hotel prices are incredibly expensive. Yeah, you're not doing a hotel. You got to do the Airbnb and you shove all of you in a room, right? Uh, well, we actually do uh, day trips to go down to uh, San Francisco and come back in the evening. Okay. Which is yeah. still cheaper, <laughs> a lot cheaper than... It, it's unbelievable that the price skyrocketing that's been happening. Yeah. Even compared to the time we went there since 2017, the hotel prices uh, really increased. Even the places we used to stay, uh, it's double or triple. It's amazing how expensive it got even in the past two years. Sounds like a bubble. Yeah. We will, we will see what happens. If you had to make one prediction about the future, you can give me a time horizon of your choosing. What would it be? Something bold that most people wouldn't agree with. Let's see. I'm actually fairly happy with the startup. I probably would still do the um, currently what I'm doing. I did think about it a number of times. People say, oh, what, would, what else would you do? And I think uh, my move is fairly uh, bold. People used to ask me, what would you do if the money hadn't been a limiting factor? And I turned back and looked at it. Oh, my God, what I'm doing is already if I hadn't had the uh, money, if I hadn't had unlimited amount of money, this is what I would do. I can't believe I already started doing it. <laughs> With That's the always the attitude you need. You got you to gotta crush through a lot of things. It always <laughs> helps when you're crazy about it. This is a biotech startup. You need almost unlimited amount of money to develop a product. I know, right? I know. So I have one last question for you, Fatma. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything, before you tell them a little bit more about you and where to find you, what would it be and why? Ready for the opportunities. When they show up, you can take it. It's a lot better than not having, not being ready to take the opportunity when it comes by to you, passes by to you, and you can't take the, uh, that opportunity. That would be worse. You may not have the opportunities, but be ready to take the opportunities. Carpe diem, carpe diem. <laughs> Gra- grab it and go, grab it and go. I like it. Thanks so much for coming on, Fatma. This has been a, this has been fun. Where can people find you and learn a little bit more about what you do? Well, they can uh, find us at fairanim.com and where we have the contact information and the emails from there would reach me out. Or if they're around San Francisco or in Davis, they can definitely send me in an email or they can directly send me an, e- an email through LinkedIn or Twitter. At Twitter, I have Kaplan Schiller is my Twitter handle. At LinkedIn, you found me. <laughs> it says Fatma Kaplan. <laughs> I did find you. LinkedIn, the social network everyone hates but kind of has to use. It, we have found it actually very useful. When I was a scientist, just really a hard, uh, you know, scientist, I didn't realize how important. But it is really important to communicate and uh, reach out to many people. 
Now, a lot more people know about the pheromones and the nematodes. They usually say, what is that? It's a roundworm. And here's a picture. <laughs> Pictures help, especially when you're explaining stuff like this. That is true. I have learned a lot from business world. I think it was a good move. Not initially I intended to, but it was a very, um, very good move. Yeah, you hated your life until you figured it out, and now it's all good. Yeah, I like business. <laughs> what I was wishing is I should have been in business a lot earlier. <laughs> Ooh, and from a scientist as well. That's a, that is a change of pace. Fatma, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been fun. Thank you for inviting me and providing me the opportunity. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. I think sustainable agritech is incredibly important and there's a lot of unsustainable stuff happening. So I wanted to give you guys a platform and hopefully some people are interested and help out. Uh, thank you. Follow us on the Astro Nematode for our Astro Nematode project. We are flying the nematodes in December 4 with SpaceX. So we'll Ooh. be providing updates there. And if you send me your address, I can send you a mission patch. We have a mission patch I will by International station, uh, Space Station. I will definitely send you one of those nerd, nerd, uh, <laughs> nerdness getting tickled or something. I don't really have a good phrase for that, but definitely excited. Awesome. Okay. Thank Sweet. you. Talk to you guys later. Cheers. Bye. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.